Is there a truth so forbidden, so powerful, that to truly know that truth, to share that truth could cost you your life? Today we'll talk about that, Forbidden Truths on the Soul Track. I'm reading an article filed January 16, 2019. Man who says he was abducted by aliens breaks 45-year silence. It was an article sent to me by a Soul Trap listener, and I found it fascinating, and I want to share it with you. Man who says he was abducted by aliens breaks 45-year silence. Pascagoula, I believe I'm pronouncing it, Mississippi. A Mississippi man in declining health is telling a story he's kept secret from his own family for 45 years. He claims he was abducted by aliens. Calvin Parker says he and his buddy Charles Hickson were fishing in 1973 on the banks of the Pascagoula. Gula River, just north of where Ingalls Shipyard now sits, when a, quote, real bright beam appeared all over us, and it kind of blinded me for a second, and when I got my vision back, I could see three bulky-looking creatures coming towards us. Parker said the creatures were probably four to four and a half, possibly five feet tall, built like football players. But I noticed they kind of moved mechanical-wise, and they were floating off the ground. By the time we stood up and turned around, quote, they was there on us all at one time, he told WALA in a rare interview. Quote, two of them got hold of Charlie, one of them got a hold of myself, and instantly I felt, well, I felt just relaxed. Parker, who was 19 at the time, claims he and the 42-year-old Hickson were levitated into a spacecraft. There was an examination room, what I call it, and the old big ugly creature that brought me in, he took me and laid me on the examination table, and he just backed up out of the way. I couldn't move or anything. All I could do was look, Parker said. A device about the size of a deck of cards then came down from the ceiling. It hovered about a foot in front of my eyes, and then it went to the right side of my head, and it clicked. Went behind my head, and it clicked. Went to the left side of my head, and clicked. And then straight to the front, and then it shot back into the ceiling, he said. Then a more feminine-looking creature came out. She looked completely different than what I called the robot, he said. She had regular fingers and came over and pinched me on the side of the cheek. And then she took her finger and ran it down my throat and got it behind the tonsils, or that thing that hangs down back there, and tried to come up my nasal cavity. And that is when it started hurting. I started choking, and I got scared. She just kind of telepathically told me, don't be afraid, we aren't going to hurt you. Parker said the aliens... Later then dropped him and Hickson on the riverbank. They called the Jackson County Sheriff's Office to report the incident. Former Jackson County Captain Glenn Ryder said he told the men to come into the station. 
to test their sincerity. Ryder said deputies secretly placed a tape recorder into an interrogation room and left the two alone. Quote, I got to get home, get to bed, or get some nerve pills or something, see the doctor or something. I can't stand it. I'm about to go all to pieces, Parker was recorded saying at the time. I tell you, when we get through, I'll get you something to settle you down so you can get some sleep, Hickson responded. Something happened to them, said Ryder. You don't fake fear. He was scared. He was scared out of his mind. The men would also take lie detector tests and pass. The story quickly went viral, or viral for that day. It was a circus, a media circus, former WALA TV reporter Rennie Bramber said. Bramner believes something happened that night. Quote, I do not think they made it up in the sense that they created it out of whole cloth. I've been told particularly Hickson was known to take a drink. Was it in the bottom of a bottle of John Barleycorn bottle? I don't know. Hickson wrote a book on his encounter and spoke numerous times about it before he died in 2011. Parker, though, stayed out of the limelight for 45 years. But after suffering a stroke and having two open-heart surgeries, he decided it was his turn to write a book about the night that changed his life. The Pascagoula Close Encounter, My Story. You can't really pin everything down. You don't really know, and that's the point I'm holding out. I don't know what happened, but I know something happened, Parker said. An interesting story. Again, we are left with questions and a dilemma of interpretation. I'm going to share with you a story that was recently sent to me by a very, very talented musician and a listener of The Soul Trap about an experience that she and her sister had. The letter was written, I also wanted to write to you my experience with my sister several years ago. We were driving home midsummer, down I-69, heading toward the capital of Michigan. It was literally so surreal, and as I'm typing, the memories are resurfacing clearer. Quite a bit ahead of us, we saw three lights, shaped in a triangle, but not connected. I cannot make this up. Again, this was several years ago, and I had zero knowledge of what UFO activity was like, what other people had experienced, and that this was actually a common sighting. At first glance, we thought it could be a very, very low plane. As we kept on, the lights moved directly over the highway on our side of the median. It was most definitely moving before, but now, well, now it appeared to be stopped. And planes don't do that. It was at a complete stop, and we know it to be true because we found ourselves almost directly under it. It was too low to make sense, but far enough away that nothing but the lights could be made out. I'd have to ask my sister if she remembers the colors we were both screaming, holy blank, what is that? And of course, I digress from the letter and say, if you've ever encountered something para-anything, if ever there was an excuse to cuss, you would feel that sensation. It is a shock. It is a break with the norm and the reality. We were both screaming, the letter says. What is that? Over and over. 
It started moving, still a little bit ahead of us, and our exit was approaching. Whether it was fate or luck, I usually prefer the former, our exit happened to branch off in the direction it was heading. It and us veered off the highway, and we decided to stop in a carpool lot to get our phones out and take videos. It was easily the most bizarre thing I've ever witnessed. It stopped and took off smooth and fast. It appeared to be hovering, gliding, floating. Whatever the correct word is, I'm not sure. But it was not a plane on my grave. It was not a plane. We sat and yelled and laughed nervously as it took off in its final direction alongside the highway. We checked the skies repeatedly the rest of the night. As a child of God, I was not scared, but as a child of God, I was hyper-aware, and I can still remember the eerie feeling that it left. These stories are myriad. I could go on reading story after story after story. Some people discuss them, some don't. Some report them immediately, some wait, like Parker, 45 years. But there is a growing number of people, not in the hundreds and not even in the thousands, but in the tens of thousands, and maybe globally in the millions of people who are experiencing these kind of phenomena. But alongside this phenomena of alien abduction is a very strange and frightening occurrence as well. And that is the death of those who seem to get close. As we said at the beginning of the show, it is as if there is a forbidden line, an invisible line, that up to a certain point you are more than welcome to investigate. Curiosity is more than welcome allowed. But at some point there is a line where investigators cross and the mortality rate is shockingly high. It is as if that invisible line is the line between true knowledge and life. There's a very interesting article by Olav Phillips. Olav Phillips writes, It is said there are two categories in life, death and taxes. It is a conundrum all people face as we move through life. We are born, we live, and inevitably we perish. Some people die of old age, maybe an accident, or in some cases we die by our own hand for whatever reason. Mortality, as that certainty which propel many to achieve, knowing they only have a limited time on this mortal coil. For others, that drive to achieve something eventually costs them their lives. For many years, there has been a darker side to UFOlogy and conspiracy research, which is occasionally discussed and on occasion documented. The first real exploration of UFOlogy body count came in 1971 when the late Otto Bender, writing for Saga magazine, published an article called Liquidation of the UFO Investigators. In that article, Bender, who would later meet his own untimely demise, researched the death of some 137 researchers, writers, scientists, and witnesses who died in the previous decade under one some might call 
mysterious circumstances. In the article, Bender mapped out an odd mixture of heart attack, hyperaggressive cancer, suicide, and other source of death amongst UFOlogy. We need only look toward Phil Schneider's death as a case in point. Schneider was a self-taught geologist who dabbled with explosives who claimed to have worked at 13 separate secret underground facilities, the most famous of which was the much-rumored Dulce Base in New Mexico, where an apparently a battle broke out between human inhabitants and the Greys back in 1979. I know, I know, it sounds weird, I know, but let's finish the article. Schneider was one of the first researchers to present this story and supposedly the source of a beam blast to the chest which caused him to later get cancer. The story gets a bit stranger, and I find that hard to say, but it is true. While in the hospital being treated, he apparently was strangled in his sleep by a catheter found wrapped around his neck. That would definitely classify as strange. Did the catheter accidentally strangle him? Or was he murdered because of his controversial research into dumbs, deep underground military bunkers? We will never know. But it does seem a little too convenient, especially based on the amount of traction he was gaining and the content of some of his claims. But Schneider was not the only death. There are more, not a few more, many more. How about the case of Ron Rummel. Rummel was a former United States Air Force intelligence officer who went on to publish a magazine called Alien Digest. Seven issues into the publishing, Rummel apparently committed suicide by placing a handgun in his mouth and pulling the trigger. But here's where the story gets interesting. Witnesses at the scene claim that the handgun had no fingerprints or blood on it, and that the suicide note was written by a left-handed person. Rummel was, in fact, right-handed. It is also alleged that the body stank of sodium pentothal, which, although commonly thought to be a truth serum, can be used to render an individual open to suggestion and lower their resistance to actions taken against them. Roman was also collaborating with Schneider in the conspiracy realm. We have the unfortunate death also of Jim Keith. Keith, a very well-known conspiracy writer and researcher, had gone to Burning Man and fallen off the stage there, breaking his knee. Upon arriving at the Wasco Hospital, the doctors decided that he needed surgery to repair his knee. Shortly after the surgery, Keith died in the ICU of a blood clot, which had entered his lungs. Just before his death, he had told several people, I have, quote, I have this feeling that if they put me under, I'm not coming back. In a strange twist of fate, Ron Bonds, who had published much of Keith's work, would die mysteriously after having dinner at a local restaurant in Atlanta. In April 2001, Bonds and his wife, Nancy, had decided to eat lunch at a local Mexican restaurant. About 15 hours after enjoying a lukewarm beef burrito and enchilada, Bonds would add his name to the fallen. Early on the morning of April 8, 2001, Ron Bonds passed away from internal bleeding caused by toxic, toxic bacteria caused by contaminated beef. Oddly, no one else had any issues that day. Only Bonds. And he was the first person to die of a food poisoning in decades in Fulton County. The list, of course, 
goes on from here. Anne Livingston, an account, account and part-time MUFON investigator and author of Electronic Harassment and Alien Abductions, died a fast form of ovarian cancer in 1994. Her death came after a 1992 incident where five faceless men dressed in black assaulted her in her home. There is also the strange story of Ron Johnson, who died in 1994 while attending a lecture at a Society of Scientific Exploration meeting of an, appearnet, uh, of an apparent stroke and allergic reaction. Johnson, who was MUFON's deputy director of investigation and had formerly worked at Hal Puthoff's Austin-based think tank, EarthTech, died during a slideshow. During the slideshow, several people claimed to have heard a gasp. When the lights came on, Johnson was slumped over in his chair, blood oozing from his nose and his soda can next to him. Was it simply an allergic reaction or maybe a fast-acting neurotoxin? Officially, 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 the death was ruled inconclusive. The list continues, but these specific deaths, Olaf writes, illustrate the point. The commonality of strange cancer, suicide, heart attack, and odd accidents does make a case for some larger scheme at work. But the oddness of death among the UFO and conspiracy community are not confined strictly to suicides and the seeming common occurrence of death by fast-acting cancer. There are also coincidences of dates. Legendary Fortean researcher John Keel had note, notes the strange coincidence of a series of deaths which took place on June 24th. Keel pointed out that author Frank Scully, UFO contactee, Arthur Bryant, Richard Church, and the rocket scientist Willie Lay all died on June 24th. Oddly, Frank Edwards died on June 23rd, but his death was announced by James Mosley on the 24th. This list has been expanded by veteran researcher Lauren Coleman to include Robert Chereau, a famous French 14 writer, who coincidentally is the source for a very interesting story about a secret city in the Andes built by Marconi and powered by Tesla technology. Also included is Jackie Gleason, who died June 24, 1987. Gleason is interesting not only for his interest in UFOs, but also the now mythical story of how after a chance round of golf with Richard Nixon, in which they discussed Gleason's fascination with UFOs, Richard Nixon came to his house around midnight and spirited Gleason off to Homestead Air Force Base and showed him a dead alien body. Of course it's silliness. Of course that's crazy talk. Of course... During an interview with researcher Lauren, uh, Larry Warren, Gleason is quoted as saying, We drove to the very far end of the base, in a segregated area, finally stopping near a well-guarded building. The security police saw us coming and just sort of moved back as we passed them and entered the structure. There were a number of labs we passed through first before we entered a section where Nixon pointed out that he said was the wreckage from a flying saucer, enclosed in several large cases. Next, we went into an inner chamber, and there were six or eight of what looked like glass-topped Coke freezers. Inside them were the mangled remains of what I took to be children. 
Then, upon closer examination, I saw that some of the other figures looked quite old. Most of them were terribly mangled as if they had been in an accident. Strange story, I know, but back to the numbers, the writer says. So who else died on the 24th of June? Lyle Stewart, publisher of Frank Edwards' book, died June 24th, 2006, as well as James Martin, who was found floating off his private island. Even Alan Myers, the drummer of Devo, and a UFO researcher died on June 24th. It should be pointed out that it was June 24, 1947, when Kenneth Arnold had his famous sighting, which launched the interest in modern UFOlogy. So at this point, we have seen that there is a rather large body count related to UFOlogy and conspiracy research, a body count which seems to grow larger each year. The question we need now to address is why? Is there a government agency running around knocking off people who get too close to the UFO story? The author of this article says the short answer, I think, is no, but there is something going on that I think is obvious. The types of deaths and the sheer volume of published or famous UFO conspiracy investigators who meet untimely and tragic deaths is just too high. I think the money here is on an extra-governmental organization, and I think ultimately it is related even the older deaths to the secret space program. Each of these deaths has two things in common, the first being their direct involvement in UFO research at some capacity and their stature. Many of the people who died are known for their research, meaning they have the ability to spread the information around. Early in the SR-71 program, back when it was called the A-12 or Archangel, the CIA who sponsored that program used UFOs as a cover for the testing of aircraft. People would see a strange silver thing shoot across the sky and proclaim it's a UFO. Well, the CIA, seeing a plausible cover story to obfuscate the true nature of the aircraft, fueled this belief by pub pushing and publishing this information. It is also known that in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, Soviet KJB operatives entered UFO skywatch groups looking for experimental aircraft. They did this on the belief that the skywatch groups could take them to locations where odd things were seen in the sky, and those odd things were probably experimental aircraft. From there, the KGB operatives would chart altitude, direction, speed, to not only take a crack at determining the nature of the aircraft, but also the flight path. So it stands to reason that if someone like a secret space program exists, and people are seeing the craft enter and exit the atmosphere, or see these aircraft during their doing their day-to-day -day operation, that organization and organization would see this as a security threat. That couple with the golden thread of truth would threaten their operations. So the fastest, easiest way to cover up your operation would be to remove the source of information. In each of these circumstances, you see researchers being done, research being done on underground bases, abductions, and UFOs in general. All three of these could be a component of a non-aware observer witnessing or encountering, even researching something that organization does not want revealed. That is the logical extension of the cover-up methodology. It is also consistent with the men in black phenomenon. First you intimidate or play the patriotism card. If that doesn't work, then you get physical. 
then if that doesn't work, then you die, preferably on a June 24th. In every situation, the flow of data is stopped. It is an interesting idea to follow because most UFO or conspiracy researchers have a story to tell. A visit from a men in black, an odd phone call, or maybe now an email. But almost every researcher has been approached at one time or another. So what about June 24th? Well, June 24th is actually a very interesting day. It is actually the feast day for John the Baptist in the summer solstice. The logical question is, why is that an important day for people to die? Because apparently a lot of famous UFO investigators died that day, and it is also the day of the Arnold sighting. This is one of those times when conspiracy and UFOlogy cross paths. Many times, the intersection of UFOs and conspiracies fall around back engineering or some sort of scientific investigation, but this intersection is tightly bound to concepts of the Illuminati, the global and historical boogeyman. The Illuminati could also be the source of that extra-governmental organization I spoke of earlier, and in the Illuminati realm, dates are important as symbols. You may not believe in it, but they certainly do. June 24th, as the feast day for John the Baptist, is critically important because of who John Baptist was. He is actually known as John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, and he is venerated in Masonic lore because he represents a duality. On one hand, he represents passionate religious zeal. He was, after all, the man that Archangel Gabriel came to and spoke of the coming birth of the Messiah. On the other hand, he represents knowledge and education. Each element is independently strong, but if you bring both together, you form a path to enlightenment or illumination. In the Masonic context, each Mason is asked to participate in the festival, to strengthen the fraternal bonds, and to close ranks and renew their commitment to the Lodge. To the non-Mason, it is known as the setting of the watch, where bonfires are lit and illuminate the masses. In some traditions, in Europe, people are known to jump through the fires for good luck, but the symbolic illumination is also achieved. So it would seem to be relevant day. It would seem to be a relevant day to pass on from seeing that it represents a duality of commitment, which each of those men had, as well as knowledge that they possessed. The truth is we will never know the ultimate goals of the body count, which has become evident. Did these individuals come across some secret piece of knowledge or witness something they should not have? Most likely the answer is yes, and that would seem to be the most obvious answer for their deaths. But knowing exactly what they found, well, that's the needle in the haystack. It would also seem that some researchers' deaths are symbolically important for the purpose of reinforcing the illuminated path. Ultimately, only time will tell what their deaths meant, coincidence or murder. But until the end game is revealed, two things are obvious. The first is that the odd deaths will continue and UFOlogy research is a dangerous hobby. <laughs>